0: Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Jeff Jensen, TV critic with Entertainment Weekly.
1: And I am Darren Franich, senior writer for Entertainment Weekly. We are
0: just days away from the premiere of the new Twin Peaks series and we couldn't be more excited. Are you excited, Darren?
1: Jeff, I am so excited. I have been driving around Los Angeles listening to the soundtrack of Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me. True story. Randomly the other morning, I was driving to work feeling great, was listening to the song Questions in a World of Blue, and for no apparent reason, I started crying. So fair to say I am in a Twin Peaks frame of mind right now. I'm very excited. How are, how are you feeling? Where are you at right now?
0: I'm pretty excited. Uh, you know, I definitely have that Christmas morning kind of feeling what's underneath the Christmas tree, like what's inside that wrapped present, I have no idea. This podcast, Darren, is actually about, well, it's about our reader mail. Um, We've gotten a lot of of, of pretty amazing emails from all of you, and we're grateful for the interest. We're grateful for the feedback. You guys have some amazing theories, some great questions, and we wanted to kind of spend just about 30 minutes kind of just talking about... Some of the stuff that we've gotten, some questions we've gotten, some theories that we've gotten. And I just, you know, Darren, what I'd like to do is just kind of pepper you with a bunch of them. uh, If you're open to just being surprised and, uh, you know, just riffing a little bit on, on Twin Beaks.
1: Jeff, pepper away.
0: Here's an email from Matthew Gustafson, I believe. I'm sorry, Matthew, if I'm mangling your name, but but he had a great question, which I really love, which is, could you tell me your top reasons why the just you and I scene from season two is obviously the best scene in the series?
1: It's because James's singing voice is so angelic, which of course ties into the angel in *Firewalk* With Me. It's because all I wanted to do when I was a teenager was to get together with my pals in the living room, you know, g- gals and guys and whoever else, and just sing an extended dream pop song. Uh, and because it is so beautiful and romantic and melancholy and right as you're kind of primed for that emotional tone, then Bob comes in and totally destroys your entire life. So those are three <laughs> (laughs) reasons i could go on
0: (laughs) yeah you know i think you you kind of hit it you know the roller coaster ride of tones in that scene from that sort of swoony teen love to the irony of the whole thing but culminating with this really sincere potent Uh, slightly meta uh, encounter with evil with Bob, uh, you know, I think that just in that span of time, you just get so much of what is just tonally and texturally, uh, like thrilling and weird and unusual and powerful about Twin Peaks. So um, it's a good scene to pick as a, what is the signature scene of Twin Peaks? Okay. So let's move on to the next one. Darren Arthur Bond had a question about Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me. he He wanted our thoughts on the movie's fixation with the ring, the ring that Teresa Banks wears, the ring that, Agent Cooper sees in a dream of the red room the ring that the that uh, that the one arm man throws into the train car that Laura put puts on at the end of the film. There's a lot of theory. There's a lot of conjecture about the ring and its significance, um, and and what it does. Does it protect people from the evils of Bob and the Black Lodge? Does it damn them? Does it mark them?
1: Does it do both? Do you have any theories about the ring, Darren? I do, Jeff, and it's an accurate theory. The ring was forged on the planet Oa uh, by a race of guardians who gave a single ring to one person on every planet. Now, now, Jeff, the ring has some weaknesses. doesn't work on yellow. Uh, you have to recharge it every 24 hours. No, uh, Laura is not a Green Lantern, although, boy, that would be a fantastic film. Um, I was really intrigued by... You know, one thing that Arthur mentions is this idea that Laura putting on the ring sort of somehow saves her from Bob in this weird way. It means that he can't possess her, so so thus he has to kill her. My only two theories on that that I have to add are, it does add this even deeper and more horrifying layer to Firewalk with me, because... During most of Twin Peaks, even though I have no clue what's really happening with the Black Lodge and the White Lodge and these entities, it seems clear to me that, like, there is a good side and a bad side. That, you know, there are these entities who seem to be sort of aiding Dale Cooper and who seem to be sort of somehow sorrowful over these murders that, that keep happening. Whereas in Firewalk With Me, it feels more to me like, okay, well, you know, obviously we can agree Bob is a bad Entity. I think we can all agree on that, hopefully. But then there's the fact of, you know, if saving Laura means also killing her and if that somehow means that the Garmon Bosia will be sort of spread between these different entities, it it leaves me feeling like in this strange way, Laura is so completely trapped. You know, it's this very almost like Lovecraftian vision of a world where there are, you know, upper level dimensional entities and none of them are remotely um, beneficent. The only other thing that I have to add to that is David Lynch has been married four times. So presumably he has heard the phrase, with this ring, I wed, more than some people have. I don't know what to make of that. I'm not saying that Twin Peaks is, is, is an anti-marriage screed by any means. Just 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 something that I'm kind of putting out there into the world. What what's your interpretation of of the green ring, Jeff? Am I am I just talking gibberish here?
0: <laughs> I like how yeah, Twin Peaks Fire Walk with Me is actually this elaborate allegory about David Lynch's attitudes about marriage. Yeah, you know, <laughs> the ring is a complicated symbol for me and there seems to be clues in the text that both suggest that of the ring as a as a damning thing and a ring as a thing of salvation um and maybe clues that also suggest that it does both i mean the whole thing where agent cooper seems to be speaking to laura palmer through dreams by saying don't take the ring laura don't take the ring um but then at the end it it, it definitely seems to be this sort of s- salvation tool for laura you know laura says that bob's ambition is to possess her that he wants her he wants to be her so what I take the ring to be is this thing that saves her from being possessed by Bob and being taken over by Bob so that Bob can't use her as a vessel for evil. But I think that obviously there is some kind of trade-off whereby one, if she if she puts this ring on, then she becomes owned by the Black Lodge and she lives in this sort of limbo state um, between heaven and hell or just some pocket world where things are crazy and she can't get out of. It seems to be juxtaposed with the scene in that train car where Ronette Pulaski, she seems to find some kind of deliverance from angels. So there is this equivalence between angels and the ring, and the, but the ring is a different kind of deliverance, one with a trade-off. And that is that she shuts Bob out, but she gets owned by the Black Lodge. I can see where Agent Cooper might like think that's a really bad idea. You can imagine that that scene where he's communicating to her and saying, don't take the ring, Laura, don't take the ring, is Cooper... In the future, if you will, at least from Laura's standpoint in time, trapped in the Black Lodge, trapped in 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 limbo, and he can't get out. His freedom has been taken away from him, and so he's like encouraging her, "Don't do this." That it's it's maybe the trade off isn't worth it, or maybe like Cooper doesn't really understand the stakes. So it's a confusing bit of business, and it'll be interesting to see if the ring factors into uh, the the new series. Two more emails for you, Darren, and then I know that you have some emails for me. Uh, Lenny Picker writes that he he writes about uh, season one and season two and the resolution of the Laura Palmer mystery. And he said, I thought that there were fair clues that Leland was Laura's killer, uh, especially Killer Bob's. You may think I've gone insane, but I promise you, I will kill again. That, for me, he says, was, was, it was a clear fit for Leland, who acted crazy after the mur- murder and was shown smothering Jacques. I, I picked this email because I kind of wanted to just hear from you. Do you think that the clues pertaining to the murder mystery of Laura Palmer played fair with the audience?
1: Um, You know, I think that generally... Well, I, I don't really know what played fair means because I, I sort of think that a lot of mysteries that people tend to love often feel to me like they're weirdly overly architected. So I I, I want to say I'm sort of okay with it if following our theory, you know... Something we've talked about, if they sort of constructed this mystery and then sort of had to had to retcon solve it once ABC insisted that they do. That being said, like I, you know, one thing that you pointed out in our season one podcast, Jeff, that I I had sort of forgotten, except as just sort of general craziness, the funeral sequence in season one where Leland, um, you know, jumps onto Laura's coffin as it's falling down. You sort of talked about just the wonderful and very. Gruesome, you know, dark joke at the center of that—the coffin kind of going up and down, and him crying. But rewatching that scene, there's also the moment where uh, Laura's mother kind of yells down at him, and you know what she's yelling is like, it, it, I'm paraphrasing here. It's like, "Don't ruin this too." And th- the first time you watch that, you're just kind of like, "Oh, well, this is this is officially a, a cuckoo bananas family of wackos." And upon rewatch, I was kind of like, "Wow, that seems to connect so perfectly into what we see in Fire Walk with Me." And into this sort of, this just incredible figure of, of the mother as someone who knows what's going on, but can't quite voice it. So I, I do think it, it played fair. I mean, again, I, I guess to me, the notion of the mystery as something that is fundamentally unsolvable is something that I really love. And frankly, this is why like I'm the one proponent of this theory, I think, which is I totally believe um, zombie Leland in the season two finale when he says he didn't kill anybody. Maybe he didn't. You know, who's, you know, we should, we should listen more to him. He has, he has like scary white eyes. Um, But yeah, I think, I think they played fair. But, but you know, what do you, what do you think? I mean, I I know that like, and listeners already know this. We tend to default to a very like, you know, holistic ambient, like it doesn't matter if there is an answer to the mystery type of question. But what, what do you think about this? Do you think that as far as the Leland reveal, the show was always kind of playing fair with that?
0: Yeah. I want to reiterate that. I agree with you in that last sentiment. Like, ultimately, when I engage Twin Peaks, I don't necessarily engage it as a puzzle to solve. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. There are lots of TV stories out there that I do enjoy as sort of narrative puzzles to solve. But with Twin Peaks, I just like engaging the mystery and thinking about it thematically and metaphorically and what it all feels like and where that's pointing to in me and in the story. But I do think that the show ultimately plays fair. I think that it is pointing very clearly toward Leland. And I think that as it starts dialing up the supernatural aspects in season two, it is laying the groundwork, although it's not necessarily very clear to see that there is some kind of demonic possession involved. You know, interesting, um, and perhaps our readers have already read it, but we'll we'll link to it in, in this post. You know, we, we recently interviewed Kyle McLaughlin um, for a piece that ran in the magazine about the 10 episodes of Twin Peaks that you kind of need to see in order to prepare for the new show. And he said something that was really interesting, which is that he wasn't sure that the Bob Leland duality... At least, as it was expressed in the show, in the episodes that resolved the Laura Palmer murder, um, really represented clearly, at least, or if at all, the original intention of the filmmakers. And I, I asked him, you know, if if ABC hadn't pressured Lynch and Frost to wrap up the, the murder mystery. Um, did he think that it, it would be possible that we would have gotten a different conclusion? Maybe even a conclusion that separates Leland from the emerging mythology, you know, so that it is clearly Leland, or maybe even clearly just Bob, um, or at least at the very least, maybe the idea is developed a little bit better and more, more dynamically. And he says it's possible, it's possible. But I thought that was interesting that he wasn't convinced that that the solution that we got was the original intention, or at least um, the way that it was expressed.
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, I do think that the coolest thing about this new season is... We're going to kind of get to see like what do David Lynch and Mark Frost think about that? And you know, as we discussed in our Firewalk with Me episode, I think it's very much on the table that Firewalk with Me somewhat walks back or at least complicates the idea of possession and you know what that means and how we kind of interpret that vis-a-vis who really killed Laura. So, you know, again, to me <laughs> to me, how great is this, Jeff? This show's almost 30 years old. We still don't really know who killed Laura Palmer, maybe.
0: (laughs) Um, Finally, on my end, I want to share an email from Tom Martin, which I think is just really sweet. He writes, as I have gotten older, I have found my fondness for Ed and Nadine as a couple to have grown considerably. Having been married two and a half years, I can relate to Ed's love for Nadine in a way I couldn't before when viewing the show in my early 20s. Back then, I definitively believed that he should be with Norma and couldn't understand why he held such care and personal responsibility for Nadine, given her quote-unquote behavior. And I I thought that was just a a really sweet email. And you know what? Like As we've kind of said before, Darren, on the show, I think that of of several characters that for me that have improved over time, Nadine, I enjoy her more. Whereas maybe I didn't really enjoy her back then. I kind of maybe agree with Tom that it was you know Ed and Norma that was the romance should flourish. But the way that Ed Ed's sense of responsibility to Nadine is really sweet and moving, and I've grown to really appreciate the absolutely singular, eccentric, beautiful character that is Nadine.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I couldn't agree more, and I've talked a lot about my love of Big Ed, and I just think that, you know, from performance to the character's role in the show, there is something really wonderfully... And, and very very like poignantly old fashioned about him and you know w- when we think of like an old fashioned American dudes you know your mind goes to Tony Soprano saying like whatever happened to Gary Cooper and it, it becomes sort of a parody but with Big Ed you just have this thing where here's just like a man's man and like you know so manly that he works at a gas farm which are just two words that when they go together just scream you know man and America and frontier and yet there's something about his dedication to Nadine that simultaneously is really noble and you know very melancholy there is just a sense with him that he's always kind of like wearing the, the weight of the world on, on his shoulder and I, I just find that their dynamic and the fact that you do sort of believe it as a relationship despite how openly wacky Nadine can be and how kind of larger than life Big Ed is uh, yeah I think that's just such a just seeing Big Ed in that trailer that Showtime put out a couple weeks ago I kind of got like tingles um, so I'm yeah I, I definitely Uh, agree with that Ed and Nadine
0: cool so you have some emails too uh, Darren hit me with them
1: I do. Uh, Jeff, uh, we got an email from Richard Gold. A very long email. Richard, a lot of great points. I'll just pull out the, the, the best ones. Richard says, my biggest thought was, I was surprised you guys didn't discuss the music. I, too, adore Agent Cooper, but maybe my second favorite character in the series is Angelo Badalamenti's score. Couldn't agree more on this. We could spend a whole episode just talking about this score. I think one of the most remarkable things about it is that it almost has that quality, and I mean this as a huge compliment, it has the quality of really good video game music where you can just listen to it over and over again the way that opening theme kind of segues from being incredibly you know glorious and wonderful and oh like uh, you know here's the sign and here's the mountains to something much scarier and sadder and ultimately quite strange uh, you know I think that's really remarkable and you know bringing with that is the fact that Angelo Battamenti of course wrote so many of the great songs that Julie Cruz is singing lyrics by David Lynch, and uh, you know, I, I think that's just such, such a great running part of the series. I believe that Julie Cruz is going to appear in the new season, right, Jeff? Like we've had some confirmation around that.
0: My understanding is that Julie Cruz is in the new series. There's a number of new uh, of musicians that will be appearing in the show, including Eddie Vedder uh, and Trent Reznor. And several others as well. So Julie Cruz's new house band is going to be pretty rockin', I think, <laughs> in, in Twin
1: Peaks. Oh, my God. Can you imagine Eddie Vedder doing questions in a world of blue? Questions in a world of blue. <laughs> um, big big Pearl Jam fan here. Uh, I want to move on to, uh, we, had a, we had another uh, email from a listener, Travis Molohan. Hope I'm pronouncing that at all correctly. From Morgantown. Travis says, uh, I was happy to hear your discussion on the shows influenced by Twin Peaks. X-Files being definitely one of the bigger franchises. He also mentions Northern Exposure, Picket Fences, Bates Motel, True Detective, and The Killing. However, says Travis, I think one of the biggest franchises influenced by Twin Peaks is Fargo, especially the original film. The Coen brothers are the closest to Lynch in capturing unique characters and settings to tell their story. And the music, like Lynch, the music in Fargo is a character itself. First point here, I think I'm glad we live in an era when Twin Peaks and Fargo are both franchises. I think that's that's an evolution I think that's good. Uh, second point, um, you know, it's almost kind of interesting to compare the Coen brothers and Lynch. They both kind of came up at the same time. They both experienced, you know, kind of the move from independent cinema to being tremendously successful in the 1990s. I kind of go back and forth on whether or not um, like, are the Coen brothers more pessimistic? Is Lynch more pessimistic? Is Lynch more kind of sincere? Are the Coen brothers more confusing? Um, you know, its influence on, on the movie Fargo I'm, I'm not so sure about because that feels to me more like you know the Coen brothers operating at, at their own height but uh, to Travis's point the Fargo TV show which is of course show ran by Noah Holly Noah Holly seems to be a big Twin Peaks fan we mentioned of course Jeff that um, in the finale of Legion Noah Holly's other show there was a great reference just kind of throwaway, to a character named Major Briggs who we all know is the best character on on Twin Peaks but of course just recently on the new- New season of Fargo, there was an incredible episode where Ray Wise appeared. And Ray Wise, playing a character who seemed to me Lynchian in this sort of approachable strange you know maybe a godlike figure maybe just a random person kind of way so I you know if there's any kind of like mutual back and forth I- exchange happening there that's definitely um all to the good I do find
0: it interesting that we live at this time you know we've talked a lot about um, and it gets talked about a lot just the influence that Twin Peaks has had on a lot of different television over the years but right now, at this moment on TV, there seems to be a lot of you know children of Lynch. Um, I think you could say maybe children of Twin Peaks, but certainly children of Lynch. From from Brian Fuller on American Gods to Noah Hawley on on Fargo to Damon Lindelof with The Leftovers. You know, all of these guys will tell you that they're completely indebted to Twin Peaks, but even more so, David Lynch, and. The return of Twin Peaks reminds us that, yeah, Twin Peaks had a huge impact on TV, but David Lynch in general had a huge impact on storytellers who were working today, who were young and coming of age in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, You know, Blue Velvet, Twin Peaks, Wild at Heart. You know this sort of like the the this this the span of time from the late '80s into the early '90s when Lynch just entered into the zeitgeist with his very specific, unique storytelling voice. He impacted so many storytellers uh, coming up, as did other filmmakers too, including the Coen Brothers, um, with with whom Lynch and you know those those guys that they share some you know similar qualities that today's TV kind of reminds us that. Not just that Twin Peaks influenced TV, but David Lynch as a storyteller influenced so many people and impressed so many people, like coming up and who who became storytellers today.
1: Yeah, we live in a world uh, with 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 not only more Twin Peaks, but a lot of things that are influenced by Twin Peaks. It's a it's a good world sometimes. Um, two emails here that are on kind of a similar tip. Uh, email from Doug Hanner or or Hainer. Doug, great to hear from you. Sorry for managing to somehow mispronounce your name there doug says good morning good morning i'd be curious to hear your takes on mark frost's secret history of twin peaks novel in my mind it is an odd beast where doug milford takes a very prominent role most of the town favorites have hit and run cameos thank you very much for your time putting together this fun podcast a fan doug uh doug before i answer that email i want to bring up another one from listener john Bernardi writes John, as you are nearly the official word to many people, uh, I'm not sure that's true, but nice of you to say, I'm hoping you're planning to talk about Mark Frost's involvement of Twin Peaks as well. Since he did pretty much all of the show running except for Lynch's episodes, I feel like you're accidentally perpetuating the myth that this is a Lynch vehicle first and foremost rather than a group effort. Uh, John concludes, I'm just doing my part honking for the other guy and hoping the whole picture is looked at as often as possible. John and Doug, uh, Doug, so glad you wrote these emails. Um, Doug is actually about the 20th person uh, who either on Twitter or via email has inquired about our knowledge of Mark Frost's book, The Secret History of Twin Peaks, which came out last year. Uh, I I was reticent to read this, I think just because, um, you know, unlike you, Jeff, like I'm kind of spoiler phobic, like not because I think like, you know, plot stuff is necessarily that important, but because, you know, to uh, quote Bill Pullman in, Lost Highway. I like to remember things my way, and a way I don't like to remember them is learning about them first from the internet before I actually see it. So I've I, been, like, kind of avoiding Mark Frost's book. Finally read it yesterday. Um, I will just say... Uh, as someone who has said, I love the idea of Twin Peaks as this sort of American myth, this sort of inquisition into the frontier and into a lot of aspects of American history. Um, this book is a feast of that. It makes me think that, like, that instinct in Twin Peaks really comes from Frost. Um, I mean, this is a book that, you know, it, it connects Twin Peaks to everyone from Meriwether Lewis and Jeremiah Johnson all the way up to Richard Nixon. It brings in Area 51. It brings in the Freemasons Uh, Frost is clearly really really interested in like the mystical tradition of California stretching from you know the belief systems of the Native American tribes all the way up to uh, L. Ron Hubbard who has a cameo in the book uh, being interviewed by Richard Nixon it's written in a style that I would kind of compare to something like Alan Moore's The Black Dossier it's not like a book book novel you're really kind of putting together all these pieces of archival information some of them real, some of them clearly sort of more focused on Twin Peaks itself. Um, You know, it's an interesting for me. It's interesting mainly as the sort of other side of the story from Fire Walk with Me. We sort of discussed last week that Fire Walk with Me is very much a David Lynch joint. I mean, he you know he he co-wrote it with another Twin Peaks writer, but it feels very much like it's his perspective on what Twin Peaks was. Uh, this is definitely the opposite. It's cosmic, and you know if you're digging for theories, there's a lot of them. If you want to know, you know, if you're interested in at least seeing what Mark Frost thinks about the ring. The answer is that the ring was worn by Meriwether Lewis and by Nixon and by lots of other people. Um, And uh, as Doug mentioned in his email, the main character of the book is Douglas Milford, who, if you've seen the show... He only appears very briefly. He's the sort of other cranky old brother, brother to the mayor, who winds up dying on his wedding night. Um, so it's, it's definitely interesting. I, I'm realizing that I, I kind of misspoke last week when I compared Firewalk With Me to the Silmarillion. Like, this is definitely the Twin Peaks Silmarillion. This is like, if you want to hear how this connects to like everything in the broader universe, this is sort of a, a roadmap for that. There are a couple interesting plot elements that seem like. That lead into the new season, um, and there's also my the one thing that I will call out, Jeff, which I absolutely love is um, in the book. Mark Frost talks a lot about uh, the uh, kind of vixeny redhead. I believe her name is Lana, who of course marries Douglas Milford, and sort of throws out the idea that she may have been an assassin. Like, which makes me think that either that is something that they would have played into or that that's just some cool thing he's come up with. Um, And then she goes, uh, she she then moves to New York and briefly dated a bizarrely coiffed real estate mogul before marrying a hedge fund manager. Yes, the secret history of Twin Peaks seems to strongly imply that the redheaded vixen from season two wound up dating Donald Trump. So (laughs) it's interesting. It's definitely all really fun. Um, But I mean, Jeff, like, you know, you you have studied Twin Peaks so much more than me. How do you kind of feel about, you know, this question that John brings up? The, the, the fact of Mark Frost, you know, who, of course, is co-writing this new season and is, you know, the co-creator of the whole Twin Peaks idea.
0: I, I think that the book reminds us very powerfully that Mark Frost is one of the co-authors of Twin Peaks. And it is very difficult to parse the creative collaboration between Lynch and Frost unless you're really talking about specific episodes that are, A, directed by Lynch, and that, B, we know from behind-the-scenes lore that he really kind of reinvented and restructured on the fly, um, including like the series finale. So I'm very sensitive to the concern of the email there that we are talking about... Uh, David Lynch maybe too much and to the diminishment of Mark Frost and other people who contributed significantly to the show the Lynch stuff is the easiest to talk about the Lynch part of it all is the easiest to talk about because it's so distinctive and I would just say that his storytelling style and his cinematic like like just powers are, are, are key things that elevate all of this material to the level to which we love it intensely. But absolutely, Mark is is an important author here and a key author here to this work, and I, I don't want to give him short shrift. That said, I, I will say that I think that Mark would even admit to a large degree that there is no Twin Peaks as we know it and love it without David Lynch and that he's he's an essential partner or otherwise you you don't make this show at all you know the, the behind the scenes story of the new series is that yes it was Mark's idea to do the show again and yes he did have an idea for the story. But he he went to Lynch and said, "You know, unless you you know you have to do this, and you have to direct everything. That was a very strong pitch that Mark had to David. You have to direct everything, so Mark Frost clearly understands the magic of David Lynch. I think that Mark is a by his own admission, a David Lynch fan, um so i would just tell our listeners that when we geek out on lynch you are definitely listening to two people who love david lynch there's just no question i'm not we don't pretend to understand david lynch um, but we certainly like what he makes but both things are true here we could talk about twin peaks to the exclusion of mark frost but we believe very much that he's like an author here of this work um One thing I would say about the book, I think it's really entertaining. I love it as an act of construction and just the way that Mark writes it. It is presented as there are multiple layers of authorship, ironically enough, in the book itself. Um, It is presented as a dossier of materials that have been collected over a period of time um, by someone whose identity is revealed at the end of the book. And I'm going to spoil that for you. It's Major Briggs. So we come to understand that this book is a collection of stuff that Major Briggs has collected over the years that explains essentially the mythology of Twin Peaks. That said, it's also presented, this dossier has been annotated and analyzed by an FBI agent who works for Gordon Cole and he or she is um, making notes throughout the text, trying to confirm it, corroborate it, challenge it, cross correlate it with other things that is known about Twin Peaks. And this um, funny uh, thing is that the FBI agent um, for the longest time in the dossier is only known by the initials TP. TP and we we come to find out at the end of the book that TP does not stand for twin peaks but it stands for a name which is Tamara Preston and i'm wondering if maybe Darren Tamara is a character that we might be meeting in the new Twin Peaks. So that might be the way in which this book directly ties into the new Twin Peaks. But as you said, yeah, there's lots of stuff in here, lots of background stuff about characters that you know and love that you may or may not like. So like one of my the big news flashes is that, uh, the log lady was apparently maybe abducted by aliens
1: once a long time, time ago. (laughs) Um, and, uh, and Jeff, Jeff, you know who she was abducted with, right? Did you get to that part of the book? Yes. She was abducted with Harry Dean Stanton from Firewalk with me. Right. Which is which seems to imply that they serve a, a somewhat similar purpose or they're somehow tied. To to be clear, let me just spoil this. Mark Frost doesn't really say what's happening. It could be like it's basically a combination of aliens, but aliens who've been here the whole time. And also they might not necessarily be from space. They're from an interdimensional space so it is one of these things where it answers the questions by saying the answer really is everything I mean that as somewhat of a of a compliment um, but I mean it is like you know you, you you sort of end the book with this sense of like okay like I get it so you know the answer to the mystery is it's alien space gods who've been here forever who live under the world and above the world and in the sky so it you know it's 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 a fun way to sort of not end Answer something by answering everything, if that makes any sense.
0: (laughs) No, that totally makes a lot of sense. Yes, our final email, Jeff and Darren. Hello, my name is Sam Witt. I'm a moderator of the Twin Peaks Reddit page and a massive Twin Peaks fan. I just listened to your podcast episode on season one and enjoyed the commentary. Since you encourage listeners to email you, I have some season two thoughts to share. I'll be try to be brief, uh, but with Peaks, it can be hard and we know that very well. Um, <laughs> firstly, thanks for doing the podcast. To be frank, Once the return begins airing, you will have some serious competition from the numerous fan analysis podcasts that have been out there for a while, including the Twin Peaks podcast, Twin Peaks Unwrapped, Diane, and so many others. While I feel there is room for more, I would be lying if I said I haven't seen some negativity about your entry into the Peaks podcast realm due to you being part of EW. Nevertheless, welcome. Well, thank you. It's good to be welcomed (laughs) into (laughs) into this (laughs) Let's just stop here real quick in in Sam's email. I just want to uh, give a huge shout out to all the other podcasts that are out there that have been talking about Twin Peaks for quite a while, that have been keeping Twin Peaks fandom alive, that have analyzed every mystery under the sun. Darren and I kind of know that that there is maybe very little to talk about that hasn't already been talked about, about Twin Peaks, and that, that hasn't been talked about at greater depth and even better than, than, than we can. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a field of, of that I really want to start digging into. I, Darren, I don't know how many Twin Peaks podcasts that you listen to. Uh, we, we both are, are keenly aware of how many that are out there because it took a really long time to figure out a name for our podcast because all of them have been taken <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I think it's cool to participate that. I think that as we move forward in this podcast, I would love to kind of draw some attention to a a lot of specific podcasts that are out there and, and, and celebrate the fandom and participate in it. So um I, I can understand the grumbling oh here's this major media brand getting into the fan field and what are they doing what are, uh, i i get that inclination of fandom uh where we're, we don't want to be that 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 big bad media brand that's taking over the fan game we but we love Twin Peaks. We love to talk about Twin Peaks. We hope to talk with all of you more about Twin Peaks. I think that's a big reason why we wanted to do a podcast devoted to fan mail. We like to do that more moving forward. Um, so please don't see us as a competitor, see us as a person that really wants to engage you and talk to you about things, and 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 know that we know that you fans that the fans that are doing these other podcasts out there i don't know if we could really hold a candle to them darren
1: yeah, I mean, I kind of look at our role, Jeff, as very similar to really what we are is we're kind of like the Chester Desmond and Sam Stanley of the Twin Peaks podcasting <laughs> world, you know, like you know, like everybody else has been here for a lot longer. We come in, people don't really trust us, the locals aren't sure what to make of us. But you know, like Jeff, you have your own MO, and I guess in this metaphor, I'm like Weirdo Kiefer Sutherland who in the in the, in the missing pieces has a really cool laboratory that actually looks uncannily like my office in terms of mess, not in terms of of awesomeness. So I would just say, you know, part of fandom, I think, is sort of all about like uh, being open, uh, that's kind of to me the defining thing about fandom that I love is this sense of like you know exploring things from a new perspective Twin Peaks especially kind of lends itself to that so I kind of feel like yeah to me we're all going to be jumping into this new season trying to figure it out trying to solve it wondering if there is any way to solve it and I think that's beautiful and I hope that uh, everybody else said the Twin Peaks podcast Twin Peaks Unwrapped Diane and the many other podcasts who took the good names before we came around uh, are also going to be doing great work this season.
0: Totally agree, Darren. Let me blow through the rest of his email. He brings up a really good point that really interfaces with a lot of, uh, of critical conversation about Twin Peaks that has been taking place lately in the media as a lot of different outlets, a lot of different critics, um, and including us, have taken with the show and looking back on it. He writes, anyway, since you're talking season two, I felt it was a good opportunity to offer what I feel is a rare opinion on the season overall, particularly the latter portion uh, of the season, everything after the reveal about Laura Palmer. I find that most analysis out there focuses on the first seven to nine episodes of the season and then the final episode or two, often sweeping the middle part under the rug outright condemning it or beating the proverbial dead horse with the same tired criticism everyone seems to have my position of this part of peaks is that it is the better part of the series at least to me the hottest of hot takes darren here we go um i love it i love it (laughs) i love it too i clearly remember watching this section of the show and thinking hell yeah more And then once I finished binging, I got online to begin researching this crazy show and film and found to my disappointment that this particular section of the show is frowned upon by fans and creators alike. I can go into serious depth about this part of the series and why I love it, but I'll spare you the wall of text. Thanks for the opportunity for me to express that there's at least one person out there who doesn't hate the post-reveal season two. Keep it up. Thanks, Sam Witt. Sam Thank you for your for your email, and I wanted to share it at length because you know he is right. You know, in most assessments of the show, most write ups of the show, including my own write ups of the show, like especially when you have very limited space to summarize Twin Peaks, it is very easy to just take a dismissive backhand to everything after the death of of Leland Palmer up to the final episodes of 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 Twin Peaks I I would say that my response to him is that I'm not going to apologize for my original experience of the show and even my own complicated still complicated reaction to the back half of that season I do think that you feel in the show in the int- in the storytelling itself a show trying to find what it's supposed to be doing and I think it's lapsing to uh the most easiest aspects of david lynch's and or the lynch frost style if you will to emulate and mimic and drill down on the comedy the absurd comedy and the mythology um it it does seem to be losing some magic but what i will agree with with you on sam is that i do think that it embodies some values that are really important for a television show that are that 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 that, that do make it interesting, even that if it not, might not be what I'm super interested in. I think there is a defense of that portion of the season to be made. I think you make it very well. I don't agree with it, but I think it's important to note that that I just wanted to bring his perspective to the fore. Darren, what do you think of, of Sam's defense of season two?
1: Listen, I'm on the record as thinking that the opening of episode 20, often titled Checkmate, uh, which is Major Briggs sitting on a stone throne in the middle of a sort of Garden of Eden, I'm on the record as thinking that may be the greatest moment in TV history. So, like, I'm absolutely here for anyone who wants to talk about their love of season two. I mean, it is very hard for me to say that, you know I'm not sure that I, I I could say that, like, it's better, necessarily. Uh, there are just long stretches that don't work. But I agree with you, Jeff, and we talked about this in our season two episode. There's a lot of stuff that's interesting. I cherish seeing a TV show openly trying to experiment with itself, and I think that happens a lot in that part of the season. You know, do I think it's better than some of the standout episodes directed by Lynch? Not really. Do I love it? Absolutely. Are many of my favorite major brig? moments in that part of the season? Yes, unequivocally. So, yeah, I... To me, the best thing about this new season, and I'm saying this as someone who is a much, much more recent cumber to Twin Peaks than you are, Jeff, or than, than Sam is, I like how it's really wedged open the conventional wisdom on the show, um, and I, I think that's great, and I think that that'll be fun going forward. We're talking right now, Jeff, a couple days before the new season starts. We're encroaching on like hot takes and you know wild theories and critical takes one way or the other, and I feel like right now we're in this great negative zone but you know right before then where it just feels like anything's possible not just with the new season but also with our perspective on what we already have of Twin Peaks and so I think that's great.
0: Darren, I couldn't agree more. I'm really excited for the new season. I can't wait to start talking about it and recapping it with you all.
1: Oh, Jeff, you'll be recapping 18 episodes of Twin Peaks in the next few months. That's going to be fun and a total lack of sleep for you. Everybody out there, we love hearing from you. Hope to do this more throughout the season. Send us an email if you have a long, interesting Twin Peaks thought. Our email address is twinpeaks at ew.com. Or if you have a shorter thought or you want to just hit us with some threads, you can talk to us on Twitter, He's at EW Doc Jensen. I'm at Darren Franich, not a doctor. Looking forward to the new Twin Peaks. We'll be back on Monday with our first recap of the new season of Showtime's Twin Peaks revival.